The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of Book 4, Chapters 3 through 6. In these chapters, we learn of the peculiar and bewitching bond that grows up between Quasimodo and the cathedral. Because Quasimodo has been adopted by a priest and scorned by society, Notre Dame Cathedral would come to form the entirety of his universe. It served as a gloomy and shadowy incubator. It was within those walls that he first stretched his misshapen limbs, and his first words were his first ringing of its bells. Soon he had penetrated all its depths and scaled all its heights, clamoring and sporting among its abysses like a footsure and frolicsome goat. Though protector and playground, the cathedral would also prove to be the very thing that put the finishing touch on Quasimodo's misfortunes. The bells that seemed to have given him a voice would take away his hearing and his hope. Quote, the miserable lad's melancholy became as complete and as hopeless as his deformity. Unquote. The deformities of his body led to distortion in his perceptions, digression in his ideas, and deviation in his character. He became savage and mischievous, and having been only despised, scorned, and repulsed by men, he also became malevolent. Only the statues that peopled the cathedral passed no judgment, and thus were his only friends, aside from the bells. Those who have read 93 will agree, I'm sure, that Big Marie is as pulsating with life as was the loose cannon. Only while the latter was like the living chariot of the apocalypse, the former is a prodigious hippogriff of living bronze. As an aside, I have to comment that while other authors labor to animate even their human characters, Hugo has a godlike power to breathe life into the inanimate. It is hard to imagine a more profound expression of joy than that of Quasimodo with his bells. It is so magical and so breathtaking that it deserves, and will get, a post of its own. Because Claude Frollo was the man who had gifted Quasimodo with his bells, who had adopted him, fed him, and brought him up, who had shielded him from the malice and hatred of mankind, Quasimodo served him as the most submissive of slaves, the most docile of servants, and the most watchful of guardians. He was moved by a gratitude pushed to the extremest of limits. For his master, he would do anything. I said Claude Frollo's soul was ripe for conflict. So, too, it seems to me, is Quasimodo's devotion. Not to mention the fact that the soul of Claude Frollo has taken a turn further into darkness. He has become austere and morose. The choir boys shudder when they cross his path. The little brother to whom he had devoted all his good works had become a bad lot. So, discouraged in his human affections, Claude Frollo devoted himself instead to alchemy. And he became regarded among the people of Paris as a sorcerer. Claude Frollo also showed signs of intense moral preoccupation a head forever bowed, a breast that heaved with sighs, frowning brows, a bitter smile, and an inward fire that broke forth, quote, to such a degree that it looked like a hole pierced in the wall of a furnace, 
unquote. What was the nature of this preoccupation? Hugo does not tell us. But he does say that he was a relentless enemy of Egyptian arts, that the mere rustle of a petticoat made him pull his hood over his eyes, that he had asked the bishop to forbid the playing of a tambourine in the square, and that he sought precedent for the execution of those guilty of complicity in conjury with goats. The second of my posts to the Facebook group was called Laughter as an Instrument of Human Joy. I recently finished a class discussion of the chapter in Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead, in which the character of Ellsworth Tui lays out his modus operandi. One of Tui's principles is kill by laughter. He says, quote, Laughter is an instrument of human joy. Learn to use it as a weapon of destruction. Turn it into a sneer. Don't let anything remain sacred in a man's soul, and his soul won't be sacred to him. Kill reverence, and you've killed the hero in man. One doesn't reverence with a giggle. Unquote. In this respect, Victor Hugo would be one of Tui's spiritual arch nemeses. Everything in the Hugo universe radiates reverence, heroism, and sacredness and Notre Dame is permeated with joyful, life-giving laughter. I can think of few examples of a more pure, unbridled, impassioned joy than that of Quasimodo and his bells. From the moment on the day when the full peals are to be rung, that he breathlessly ascends the staircase at a faster pace than anyone else could have gone down, to his loving gazes, ardent caresses, and grateful condolences on their hard work, to the panting excitement with which his eyes follow the first creaking movements, and his mad burst of laughter as he shouts, Here we go! To his enraptured basking in the sound of the bells, the only sound he could still hear, like a bird basks in the sunshine to his frenzied, fire-eyed, dreamlike whirlwind rides astride them, like a strange centaur, half man, half bell. The sheer imagination of this scene is breathtaking. The exaltation of it is inspiring. Reading this section, I was reminded of a moment from my childhood. As a young girl, I loved horses. I read little, yeah, that's right, but could be bribed to read anything horse-related. Every birthday candle blown out or penny thrown in a fountain featured the same wish. I recall the thrill of the day I had the opportunity to pet the horse that played the black stallion in the movie like it happened yesterday. One day, I was at my grandparents' house in the Adirondacks, sitting at the upstairs breakfast table, operating at my characteristically slow early morning pace. From the road, at the end of their very long, wooded driveway, I heard the distant sound of hooves on the pavement. After racing down the stairs, leaping into my clothes in what felt like a single motion, and flying back up at a faster pace than anyone could have gone down, I was met with the delighted and astonished laughter of my mother and grandmother, who didn't know anyone, and certainly not me first thing in the morning, could move so quickly. I noticed their laughter more in retrospect, because I flashed past them and down the driveway to the road, where I was there waiting for the trail horses before they even passed by. 
I love reminders to embrace that sort of uninhibited, childlike sense of joy and wonder. We should all love something, many things, as much as Quasimodo loves his bells, to let things remain sacred in our souls, and to experience laughter as an instrument of human joy. The last of my posts to the Facebook group was called An Ode to Joy. Intent on milking this theme of unbridled joy still more, I started searching my subconscious and the internet for poems that captured a spirit of exuberance and optimism. I couldn't believe my good fortune when I found a poem about joy by Goethe that featured a dragonfly. A dragonfly with beauteous wing is hovering o'er a silvery spring. I watch its motions with delight. Now dark its colors seem, now bright. Chameleon-like appear, now blue, now red, and now of greenish hue. Would it would come still nearer me, that I its tints might better see. But then the poem took a turn. It hovers, flutters, resting there, but hush, it settles on the mead. I have it safe now, I declare, and when its forms I closely view, tis of a sad and dingy blue. Such, joy dissector, is thy case indeed. I found it much easier to discover poems about disappointed hopes and shattered illusions and the lost idealism of youth than it is to find poems that are celebratory and full of hope. Because I also thought to myself, haven't I read a poem about a child frolicking happily and wildly on a seashore? And then I remembered it was this one, by William Butler Yeats. To a child dancing in the wind, dance there upon the shore. What need have you to care for wind or water's roar? And tumble out your hair that the salt drops have wet. Being young, you have not known the fool's triumph, nor yet love lost as soon as won, nor the best laborer dead, and all the sheaves to bind. What need have you to dread the monstrous crying of wind? A beautiful, beautiful poem, and I love it. But again, carefree joy is an illusion of youth. If you know a poem about joy uncontaminated by cynicism or disenchantment, I'd love to hear about it. At some point in my search, I thought of Beethoven's triumphant Ode to Joy, and of the Schiller poem that inspired it. I had never actually read the words of the poem. Have you? It's an explosively joyful tribute to the brotherhood of man and to a benevolent God. Here's a glimpse. Joy, thou beauteous, godly lightning, daughter of Elysium, fire drunken, we are entering heavenly, thy holy home. Thy enchantments bind together what did custom stern divide. Every man becomes a brother where thy gentle wings abide. For a moment of unbridled joy inspired by Schiller and by Beethoven, visit the YouTube video I will link to in the Facebook group. Perhaps you have seen it. Millions upon millions have. It is a flash mob of the Ode to Joy, and I defy you to watch the whole thing through without tears of joy.